We come to our final sermon in our January series uh, where we focus on the sanctity of human life in conjunction with Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, which is usually around January 22nd, which is the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, the Supreme Court ruling in 1973 that legalized abortion in all 50 states. You'll hear a lot of that over the next year as we get near to the 50th anniversary of this court case. In fact, uh, this morning's paper, the News Star, had two uh, opposing articles um, about this 50-year anniversary, um, and you can, you can check that out. We are over 62 million abortions in the last 49 years, and regardless of your political persuasion, how can we possibly celebrate the ending of 62 million pregnancies. If someone is pro-abortion, the abortion marking the ending of a life or the brokenness of a relationship or the ongoing brokenness in a relationship. The most pro-abortion advocate can't deny the emotional pain and trauma that go along with 62 million aborted lives. That's not that Jesus can't heal that. Of course he can. It's not hopeless but it does require healing and work. Time alone does not fix that. It's not what God intended for humanity, to live like that. But the sanctity of human life is, is also not just an abortion issue. So you know when we tackle these topics, like last week we looked at racial reconciliation, and, and this week, sanctity of human life, we, we like to push back on the, the extremes of our political parties because we're the church. We're not a political party. We're not affiliated with a political party. So we can celebrate the good that, that all parties, the two major parties or any other party does, while pushing back and calling out the ways in which they need to adjust. And so if you reduce the sanctity of human life to just an abortion issue that flavors how you see the entire world, it's not just an abortion issue. Many of the decisions related to having an abortion are related to I or we can't or don't think we can provide a healthy, wholesome environment for this child to be raised in. Now, that can be debated about the, what constitutes a healthy, wholesome environment, but the concern is I'm not in a place for whatever reason to be able to raise this child in the way a child needs to be raised. And what's needed is for, not just for the church to say, well, there are better options than abortion, choose one, but for the church to say, and by God's grace, if you choose to keep the pregnancy, we're going to help you. We're going to help you figure out your adoption options. We're going to help you as a single mom, an overwhelmed family unit. Because we don't just care about babies being alive, we care about babies and families thriving and experiencing God's best for his image bearers in his life. And so while the sanctity of human life focus has its roots in praying for the end of abortion in our nation, its focus has become and should be so much more than just ending abortion. So if you could snap your, and there's a lot of debate. A lot of people think this case from Mississippi is going to get to the Supreme Court this year, and the Supreme Court could overturn Roe v. Wade, and then, and then where it goes from there, lots of opinion. It goes to the states. Every state does something different. Who knows? We'll see. But let's just imagine that you snap your finger and Roe v. Wade's overturned. Abortion is illegal in all 50 states. There are many who will celebrate. This 50-year battle has been won. Babies can live, and that, and that should be celebrated. But there's still going to be unwanted pregnancies. Image bearers created and not wanted. So if we're going to celebrate Roe v. Wade being overturned, are we also ready to step in and care for these babies and these families? Those are the kind of questions we have to ask as we, the church, step into this issue. 
our sanctifying of human life is drawn from the deepest core of our faith. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, and I'll be in mainly three passages this morning, Genesis 1, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, and Romans 9. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now this is a transformational idea in the ancient Near East, the culture that highly favored men over women. But for both of them to be equally created in the image of God, shocking. Really? She's just as valuable in the eyes of God as, as he is? One of the worst criticisms about Christianity in the Bible is that it's oppressive to women. Rightfully so, because of some churches and denominations or groups of people who call themselves Christians who use the Bible to oppress women or to abuse women or allow for that to to happen in their environment. Just like churches all over the South used, used the Bible back in the 1700s to justify slavery or Jim Crow laws, that was equally wrong. So the same thing can happen today. I mean, even today you have pastors and churches who say nonsensical things that the Bible doesn't actually say. But if you just let the Bible cook, you just let the Bible speak, and not impose on the Bible what you want it to say, From the very beginning, women have this high place of honor and dignity, equal to men as fellow image bearers, which was radical when it was first written. Even more radical during the days of Jesus' ministry, how he treated women, how the early church elevated the status of women. The church, even today, is primarily, has been primarily female. Rebecca uh, McLaughlin, in her book, The Secular Creed, talks about this. While she's answering one of these objections to Christianity related to women's rights. The church has always been primarily female. And it's important for us to to understand from the beginning God made us male and female in his image. Equally made in the image of God. Unique among all creation. So yes, we can be classified as animals. Species, homo sapien. The order of primates, class mammalia, phylum chordata, subphylum ver- ver- uh, vertebrata. We are warm-blooded. We produce our own milk to nurse our young. We have body, body hair, some of us less than others. We are animals in that sense, but we are far more than just animals. Because unique to us, we are imprinted with the image of our creator. Just watch any animal documentary and you will see a vast difference between animals and humans. And the documentaries will try and humanize the animals, but they're still animals. We've uh, been watching a series on Disney Plus, Growing Up, I think is what it's called. So it's a Growing Up Bear, Growing Up Elephant, Growing Up Sea Lion. Uh, there's another one, like six or seven. Our little kids love them because it's all about the, these animal families. You have a mama bear and her little cub growing in her tummy, and then the bear comes out, and she has to raise the little cub to be on its own. Pretty, pretty fascinating. They give them names, you know, a lot of human-like attributes, human-like qualities attributed to animals. And so it makes it seem like the line between human and animal is very close, but the gap between human and animal is still very different. The day the animals start getting behind the camera and making documentaries of us, 
well, we should be worried. <laughs> That's never going to happen. It's never going to happen. Uh, because we are more than just animals. We are human. So this is why it's the sanctity of human life Sunday. Animals are important. We want to be good stewards of creation, but they're not human. Animals, uh, we as humans have natural rights animals don't have because animals don't have a voice for themselves. They only have the voice we give them. And we can do that because from the very beginning, God made us alone in his image and gave us alone dominion over all of creation to rule over it. And so the sanctity of human life is inherent with every human being. Every single human, regardless of age, gen gender, socioeconomic status, educational level, religion, ethnicity, language, political affiliation, is an image bearer of God and is worthy of honor, respect, dignity, and value. And the question we're asking this month as we walk through these topics is, okay, that's true, then what does that do for us, or how does that lead us, drive us into God's mission? Week one, the Word of God how much of it is vital to who we are as God's people? The Word of God is like spiritual food we eat. So how does that lead us into God's mission to make disciples and see the earth filled with his glory? And we saw how vital the Word is to all we do because it alone is inspired by God. It alone is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We have a mission to make disciples and the Word of God alone is the tool with the means to do that. And so to be on mission, we have to be flavored and driven by the word more than anything else. Prayer is essential to our relationship with the Lord. It's like the spiritual air we breathe. And prayer is intended to grow our intimacy and enjoyment of walking with Jesus. But it's not simply intended to be used to increase our comfort or to get us out of trouble or to solve the problems that we don't like that we're in. Prayer is also part of our spiritual armor to wage war against our true enemy who wants to destroy us. He either wants to keep us from becoming a Christian or to make us miserable as a Christian and ineffective. And one of the great problems of living in such an affluent society is the mirage of blessing. We're good because we have money in the bank, disposable income, leisure time and freedom and access to do stuff. And so we're fine while the enemy of God is completely lulling us to sleep and causing us to be apathetic and unengaged in God's mission. And you can see a lot, of, a lot of how engaged you are by how much you're praying along these lines. And praying for God's mission to happen in your life, through your life. Our unity is rooted in Jesus, given to us by Jesus. And our unity is also to be used for God's mission. For us to be so united, it actually reveals to the world we are, in fact, disciples of Jesus. This bond we have is so deep, so strong, so affectionate that it is in fact supernatural and demands a gospel explanation. We believe also, last week we looked at racial reconciliation, we believe racism is out of step with the gospel and we want to see it gone from this earth and for the whole earth to be filled with a racial harmony, a love, a valuing, and a genuine relationship among people of all ethnicities just like it will be in heaven one day. And if we're an all-white church or if we were an all-black church and we're in a multi-ethnic region, we should long for those churches to be as multi-ethnic ethnic as that region is. If we're an all-white church in an all-white region, oh, duh, that's what we should be. All Hispanic and all Hispanic region, that's what we should be. 
But we long for, not this forced fake unity, but for the Spirit to lead His people to be one in Him. So that so much so that our region would sit up and take notice, and this blending of races with love would demand a gospel explanation. And that brings us to the sanctity of human life. We have it because God has given it to us, so how does that relate to God's mission? To make disciples among all image bearers, to see the glory of the Lord fill the earth as image bearers, And to see all over the earth, more and more image bearers know Jesus as their Savior and King. And that's where I hope the Lord takes our hearts this morning to create or to reawaken a love and a passion for image bearers to find their deepest joy in Jesus. This is the vision of our church. We desire all people to enjoy Christ, to find joy in Christ. We wrote it like that because when you're in a Bible-saturated, gospel-hardened, culturally Christian area like we are, everyone is a Christian, everyone has heard some form of the gospel, everyone has some semblance of a relationship with the local church, what's missing for many is their ultimate joy isn't rooted in Jesus. It might just be religious. He is not their treasure. He is not the source of their joy. And we as his people have to constantly assess Is Jesus alone the greatest source of my joy, my hope, my love, my affection, my peace? Because our hearts still have the ability to sin, we are constantly looking for other places to put our greatest affections. When our heart's affections become misplaced off of Jesus as primary, then we are becoming idol worshipers. And all that seems fine for a while until the failure of our idols begins to be exposed as they always do. They never hold up. Our idols never last because our idols cannot bear the weight that only Jesus can bear. So our culture may be filled with Christians, but our culture is also filled with idol worshipers. A room full of them right here. Right? Filled with people who are hurting and lonely and suffering and broken and sad and not experiencing God's great joy found in Jesus. We're happy, look at our Instagram posts, but deeply broken because so much of our joy is rooted in idolatry and not Jesus as the ultimate source. So we, by God's grace and desire, we focus, I want to focus on that word desire, desire for that to change. We desire for all people to find joy in Christ, to enjoy Christ as fully as God intends for us to enjoy Christ in this life. We want the streets of Monroe and West Monroe filled with people dancing to the joy of Christ. That's a metaphor, figurative, but sure, literally, let's do that too. That'd be awesome. Yes, we eat and drink and throw great parties as God's people. We are incredibly hospitable with our lives and our homes. We can be because we have more to celebrate than anyone. We're feasting daily with our king, longing for the day we will feast forever at his table. We also work hard, but we celebrate with great joy. This is who we are. And so there's that joy. And when life kicks us in the teeth, which is going to happen, we're not living in these protective bubble wraps as Christians. Life will kick us in the teeth. There's also this deep abiding joy that nothing and no one can shake because nothing in this life can take us away from the joy of Christ. Nothing in all the universe can take Jesus away from us. 
And since he is our greatest joy, we always have joy, even in our mourning, even in our lamenting, even in our sadness over the brokenness in our world. There's always hope and joy because there's always Jesus. And we, so we want everyone to have that. We desire that. Can we say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, beginning of verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. For the love of Christ compels, compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion that one died for all and therefore all died, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but... but They should live for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we had known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet we no longer know him this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us, all believers, a ministry of reconciliation. That is... In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and he committed the message of reconciliation to us, his people. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Are we compelled by the love of Christ to give our lives as ministers of reconciliation so that to our neighbors, to our family, to our coworkers, we can plead with them on behalf of Christ? Plead with you, be reconciled to God. That they would find their deepest joy in knowing that Jesus alone became sin for them so that in Christ they might become the righteousness of God. I mean, really take a moment and imagine the faces that make up your everyday life. How does the love of Christ and the love of Christ for them compel you, drive you, cause you to plead on behalf of Christ? Be reconciled to God through Jesus. To be sent out as emissaries and ambassadors of this incredible message, Jesus has done so much for you to find joy in him. If human life is so sacred, then the greatest problem facing humanity is super important. And the greatest problem facing humanity is the sinfulness of our own hearts. There's a millions of ways that shows up that we can talk about, but you boil it all down and it's sins we commit and sins committed against us. It's the sin we do and the sin that's done. And God has provided one remedy. We sang it a little while ago. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's it. One remedy. Jesus Christ suffering in our place on the cross, dying for our sins, rising from the dead, verifying his once and for all victory, and then sending this good news by and through his people for all to hear and believe and be reconciled to him. Any solution that does not include the good news of Jesus is putting a Band-Aid on a cancer diagnosis but what is really broken inside of us. We can talk all day about changing laws and electing people, appealing to city councils and mayors, making things better in the city. We can give all of our energy to temporary solutions that never touch what is most broken in us. 
And there's a time and place for the temporary solutions. Jesus fed people before he saved them. Jesus healed people before he saved them. So we know there's a time and place for, for dealing with physical needs, yes. But he also got to the sin problem of those who wanted to be healed forever. Not everyone did. Ten lepers were healed. Only one came back to him. A rich young ruler didn't have a physical issue, had a soul issue. Jesus gave him the solution. He didn't want any part of it. Not everyone wanted it. But for those who did, he made himself available for full and final salvation. So how compelled are we by the love of Christ to center our lives around the message of Jesus getting to sinful humanity, not experiencing true joy in Jesus? How much do we really desire this? What is the temperature of our desire to see people transformed by the gospel of Jesus? Paul went even further in one passage in Romans 9, verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ, Paul says. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. Paul is referring to the fellow Jews who hadn't believed in Jesus the Messiah. And Paul knows this is not possible. He just finished writing Romans 8. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. But he's revealing to us how deep his affections were for his fellow Jews who had not yet come to know Jesus. And this says, he said, this left him with great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. And he wished, if there was a way for me to be cursed and cut off from, from Christ, for me to go to hell instead of them, if that were possible so they wouldn't be separated from Christ, Paul wishes it were. God, help us have that kind of love for our fellow image bearers that kind of desire, that kind of passion for others to know Jesus. And not just here locally, but the thousands and thousands of people groups filled with billions of people who are living and dying every day waiting to hear the gospel. Those of you who are in perspective this semester, you'll get to a week where a guy will come and he'll lay out the case and look at all the numbers and you'll basically learn we're losing ground. Worldwide, we're losing ground. With population growth in these unreached people groups combined with numbers being sent, we're losing ground. I wish it weren't true, but that's just the facts. Okay, now that we realize the mission of God is indeed failing and it's all our fault, that's how I feel right now, let's remember a few things. Jesus is always building his church. He's always at work. At work. It's ebbed and flowed at different times in the history of God's people, but it's always happening. So the mission is, in fact, never failing. It is being accomplished. It will be accomplished. But part of how Jesus accomplishes this mission is for people to sit here and hear the, the word of God and the spirit of God speaking to their hearts and to compel them to have this passion, this desire for people to come to know Jesus and then to be sent out. It's part of how he accomplishes this. So if you're feeling this deep yearning and longing for that to happen here locally or non-locally, like this is the Spirit of God at work in you. This, this should happen in you. This should happen to all of us. And for some of you, it may be very tangible because in a few years you're going to go, or maybe sooner, you're going to go through something like Radius and you're going to be signing up to go to some nation and we're going to be cheering you on, supporting you, encouraging you. Yes, let's see this happen. 
For others, it's going to be us. For most of us, it's going to be us just living this out week by week, day by day in our neighborhoods, in our homes, where we work, where we eat, shop, play. This is where Jesus wants us to be, making disciples. The assessment this morning is, where is our desire and how compelled are we to see fellow image bearers who are just as important in God's eyes as we are, how we can help them find their ultimate joy in Jesus? It would be real easy to simply feel shame and condemnation about this. I can't say I'm close to what Paul is saying. I feel this great sorrow and unceasing anguish for others to know Jesus. I can be honest with you. Frankly, to be transparent, there's a part of me that's not even sure I want to be. I want to feel this great sorrow and unceasing anguish because I know if I felt that, it would radically reorder how I live my life every single day. Because I love my idols more than I love Jesus at times. It's a lot more fun to worship idols. Coaching volleyball is a lot more fun than feeling great sorrow and unceasing anguish for people to come to know Jesus. Watching Joe Burrow throw to Jamar Chase is a lot more fun than feeling great sorrow and unceasing anguish for people to come to know Jesus. Watching another series on Disney Plus is a lot more fun. Waking up and solving today's wordle is a lot more fun than waking up and asking Jesus to save the nations. Jesus, I'm trying to solve this wordle in one or two tries. You know how awesome it would be if I could post that? And you want me to be in great anguish and unceasing sorrow about, about what? I'd be in great anguish and unceasing sorrow if I don't solve today's wordle. That's the real pain in life. It would be easy to be overwhelmed at our failures if and how we don't love those far from God. And if the Spirit's convicting us and calling us to make change in our life, guys, we, we need to walk in repentance and obedience for our own joy, for the joy of others. So however the Spirit's convicting this morning, that's a good thing. It's because your Father loves you. And he, he knows that where you're at right now, where we're at right now, is not where He wants us to stay. He wants us to bring us forward. And he is going to provide everything necessary to accomplish that in us. And as I'm saying these words, I'm asking, God, do this in me. There's so much apathy and malaise in our culture right now and in the church right now. You just wonder, like, are, are we ever going to get back to where we were? God, do this in me. Do this in us. Get us back to where we were, fully, passionately engaged in your mission. It's not enough to start a church and get, see it get to a certain point of disciple-making in a city. I'm like, okay, well, I guess we did that. That's not why we planted the Crossing Church. We planted a church to make disciples, and that never stops until our final breath. And so we, we keep engaging, and we keep pressing this forward. We stay on this mission that God's given us locally and non-locally. But if you're feeling soul-crushing shame that just makes you want to quit and walk away to find more comfort and more idolatry, know that your Father in Heaven is not behind that. He loves you. He's coming after you to change us and bring us back to this place of great joy and obedience and engagement in His mission. So hear the Spirit speaking today. Hear the Word of God speaking today. Don't put on your sad pants and hide under the covers of shame and failure. See Jesus coming to you, helping you, inviting you, and to experience more of him by sharing his heart with those far from him.
be energized by his spirit to walk in obedience. And then let's walk this out together. Like this week, have this conversation with people you're in community with, DNA groups, mission communities, whatever it is. How do you feel compelled by the love of Christ to engage in God's mission locally and non-locally? What are the steps of obedience he's calling you to take? What are the steps of repentance he's calling you to take? Brother, sister, I need you. We need each other to walk this out or we will just quit. We have to have the body of Christ to help us do this. And so, Jesus, thank you so much that this good work that you have started in us, you will see it to completion. You are not done with us. And it feels like in a day when the church is lessening in power and growing weaker because of malaise and apathy and just the way things are right now, thank you that you are alive and you are at work and your spirit never stops what you desire for us is never going to change and so spirit of god come right now and transform our hearts pour your life into us again to energize our passion for you and our passion for others to know you so that we could more and more say with paul we are compelled by the love of christ to plead with others to be reconciled back to him. We love image bearers. And we want to see as many as possible standing around your throne one day. People who are, live locally, people who don't live locally. People who look like us, people who don't look like, look like us. People who vote like we vote, people who don't vote like we vote. None of them are our enemies. And we want to see all of them raise their voices to worship Jesus and to continue to see our enemy crushed, see his plans destroyed because Jesus continues to win. More and more, Father, let our hearts say with Paul this great unceasing sorrow and anguish for others to come to know you. This is who we want to be. Do this in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.